Hello, everyone. Welcome to a Wednesday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. I am Dan Lobby. I'm joined today by Mary Kay Cabot. Mary Kay, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? And good. And also joined by Ellis Williams. Ellis, what's up? Doing well. You know, it's easy to tell when it's Monday and when it's the weekend, but when we get to this part, I'm just going to start calling middle of the week. I, I'm not really sure. So we're in the middle of the week, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote Tuesday in a, in a tweet today. And before I hit send, I'm like, wait a minute, is it actually Tuesday? I, I couldn't even, I couldn't remember what day it was. Exactly. That's how I'm feeling, Dan. I'm glad you're feeling that. <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of that, the, the world of the unknown, uh, the NFL schedule is going to come out on Thursday night at 8 o'clock. We will have a pod ready for you on Friday morning talking all about the schedule. Uh, but that's going to give us some concrete dates. It's going to give us 256 games that the NFL wants to play. Uh, but the reality is, just like with everything else, we just don't know what's going to happen. The NFL has the, the luxury of the calendar. Uh, I know Peter King wrote about this in his MMQB column this week, and the, the thing that stood out is we got 18 weeks until the NFL has to play a real game. So there's, there's so much that can happen uh, in that time. So we're going to talk through this a little bit with the caveat that we're kind of speculating on this too. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know what we're going to see when, when September 13th rolls around, and we don't know what the situation is going to be with sports in the country. So we're going to talk through, though, what football might look like in the fall. So, so let's start with this scenario. The NFL wants to play games in their stadiums. Uh, so let's assume they can at least do that, Mary Kay. Do you think we'll have fans in the stadiums? And I'm just wondering, like, I'm trying to figure out what a capacity would be, what a realistic capacity in a stadium could be, like 50%, a third. I, I don't know. That, that's sort of what I've been trying to, to visualize. Well, here's what I've been thinking about lately is, you know, you, you listen to these different governors from around the United States talking about how they want to do things differently. And they have jurisdiction over when they want to open things and how they want to open things. So I think that's going to be a challenge because you might have one governor that is, is ready and willing to have fans in the stands as long as they're in every other section, every other seat, every other row, six feet apart, 25% capacity. Uh, you might have somebody that's willing to do something else. I just, uh, you know, I saw today that, that Governor DeWine mentioned something about having uh, school children go back in the fall from K through 12, maybe just a couple days a week in the fall, and then start doing, um, you know, online for the rest of it. So that leads, started me thinking, well, if he's going to do that, how is he going to, to feel about having football, uh, you know, in the stadiums, the Browns, the Bengals, Ohio State, all the other colleges, you know, how he's been at the forefront, he's been a leading key figure in sort of how other governors have responded to the COVID crisis. So I think that is, is one of the big things to, to try to take a look at. How is everybody going to get on the same page? Because it's going to have to be that. I mean, we're either going to have, uh, I would imagine that we're either going to have fans in stands or we're not. I, I don't know that you could have uh, it one way in one state and another way in another state. Uh, so I would imagine that they would want it to be uniform. I don't know how this is going to go, to be honest with you. And, and Ellis, the NFL has been pretty... Um pretty stern so far in, in their belief that everything should be equal. So, you know, like, like in the NBA, we've seen, you know, some talk, you know, maybe the Atlanta Hawks could get into their practice facility, but other teams can't. And maybe the NBA would allow something like that. I don't know exactly what the latest is on that. I try to keep up, but it, it's hard. It changes so much. But the NFL has been pretty much, 
if a team in Ohio can't get into their facility, then a team in Texas can't get into their facility. So I, I think that's sort of how we have to frame this too. The NFL may, may approach this a little differently than other leagues, just in the name of competitive balance. Yeah, and I think they have to. Uh, the, the sports obviously are just completely different. Uh, in football, uh, we can just look at any sort of gate in conspiracy or investigation you want to recently, and you can see that these coaches do anything they can to get a competitive advantage, as they should within the rules. But point being, these coaches need the playing field as even as possible uh, because once you start allowing people, some teams to have facility access and others not, it gets dicey where in the NBA, you know, you're dealing with some players who likely have home gyms and the game of basketball is at the end of the day is a much more simple game uh, led by stars and repetition compared to football, which is team oriented, 11 people doing moving in unison to accomplish a singular goal. So I, I couldn't agree more with the NFL's approach there that it needs to stay unison and fair and equal playing field, which greatly complicates what Mary Kay said about uh, how these governors are handling their state by state jurisdiction. Uh, Mary Kay is going to talk states. I'm going to talk movie theaters. Um, for people that don't know, I'm, I'm a huge movie guy. Uh, I had Movie Pass and Cinemia, and then when I moved to Cleveland, uh, the beautiful Regal Theater there in Crocker Park's got an unlimited movie uh, pass that I signed up for. And simply, I miss my movie theaters. But where I'm going with this is I read something in Georgia. They were going to try and do like 25% capacity in movie theaters. And I'm not sure how that has been going between trying to keep up what's going on in Ohio, my home state of Minnesota, and then on the federal level, like all of us, this is exhausting to follow. But I could see some sort of roadmap on that just to get back to your answer of how, what the stadiums may look like if they're going to allow teams to play in their specific states their specific arenas. Maybe the 25% model like the movie theaters is what they can follow. It'll look a lot different and that's really probably going to be the theme of this podcast is how the way the NFL is consumed this year is just going to be unlike anything we've ever experienced, but thus that's the, the reality we're in now. Yeah, and there was, a, there was a tweet today that got me thinking about this, too, where um, someone was going to start putting on concerts again. And they, they sort of displayed the ticketing options. And the way it worked was there would be like six seats available in one row. And you had to buy like all the, like it, one group had to buy those tickets. And then like three rows back, there were four more seats available. And you had to buy them in those groups. And, and it just sort of feels like that's probably where this is going to go. Where if we do have fans in the stands, it's not going to be... 70,000 people packed together it's going to be it's going to look like some of those December games we used to see at first energy stadium Mary Kay but not uh but but this time intentionally yeah and and what I what I wonder about uh and I would wonder what you guys would think about this is let's say for instance that um that Governor DeWine says okay you can play football but there will be no fans and let's say for instance that uh that in Georgia they say hey, you can play football and bring in all the fans that you want. Uh, what I wonder about that is, will the, the fan situation you know, be a deal breaker? I mean, does that have to be uniform state to state? Or does it just have to be, you can get on the field and you guys can play football and states can determine whether or not fans can come in and how they want that to look. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on that? I, I would think, you know, to me, I, I would think that there would be an uproar from some coach or, or some players about that, right? Because we, we always talk about crowd noise 
every year there's some games where we talk about crowd noise and, and how much it impacts it impacts a team and I, I can't imagine that there would be coaches and players who would be okay with you can come to our home stadium and it's going to be silent but we have to go to your stadium like let's just say the Browns and the Steelers you know okay the Steelers can come to first energy and it's going to be silent but we have to go to Pittsburgh and it's going to be loud and, and rowdy and heckler there's going to be hecklers and terrible towels I just I, I don't know if, if that would if that would fly in the NFL. Dan, I think that's a really good point, but I'm going to push back on a little bit just because, and to bring the movie theaters back into this, another thing going on in the movie industry right now is uh, there's this huge drama going on between Universal Studios and the movie chains, AMC, Regal. Universal had success, or so they're claiming, with releasing Trolls 2 uh, straight to home on demand. And the problem with that is now this model of releasing movies right from the distributor to home on demand is it cuts the movie theater out and these movie theaters have anxieties and worries that okay it was already getting hard enough to get people to come to movies in the first place now this pandemic is allowing studios to just release movies right to their home and are people going to ever come to the movies where i'm going with this is i could see the nfl having a real concern about all right what if we play games with no fans and have that you be a universal decision league-wide but in a way we're showing fans that hey our product's actually a lot better at home you know just stay at home that's the, that's the exact opposite of what the owners will want so the way I would push back on that Dan is yes it wouldn't be fair and the coaches would throw a fit I could completely agree but the dollar sells and if you have some fans still being able to go to games in certain cities and some fans that aren't you're still getting the best of both worlds potentially still allowing fans to remember what it's like to go to the game, still allowing that, enabling it. And then, hey, I mean, this complicates things, but then maybe you get some travel and you get people going to different stadiums, and that's probably uh, – I'm defeating my point here with, with how you could contaminate it. But point being is I could see the NFL being cool with allowing some fans in certain stadiums in, depending on state legislation, and fans and others not, just because they don't want the complete ban of fans in the worry that it would encourage in the 2021-2022 season people to stay at home because you're more comfortable there. I, I really wonder about that. I, I, I actually think that um, that Roger Goodell would want it to be uniform across the league. I mean, I would think that that, that is what they would want, but would they be able to achieve that? And if not, Will they try to forge ahead? Because there, if there is one thing that we have seen about the NFL so far throughout this COVID crisis is that they are just plowing right through it. Free agency went off without a hitch. The draft went off without a hitch. Everything, the, the, the schedule release is coming out, even though we truly really have no idea what will be allowed in each state in September. We don't know. Uh, so, Therefore, you know, I think that, you know, they're just proceeding as though, you know, it's going to be full steam ahead. Uh, but I, I don't know. I just don't know if if Roger Goodell would want it to be like that, where Georgia's, you know, the Georgia Dome could be packed and there might not be anybody in, you know, First Energy Stadium. So I, I think there's a lot to work through here. And, and Alice, I, that's, I mean, that's a good point because the NFL has, you know, a few years ago made this big push because they were realizing people were staying home because they could 
be on their phones and check their fantasy teams and watch Red Zone. And so people who weren't necessarily tied, you know, super into I have to be at my favorite team's games, they, they would stay at home. So they, you know, tried to beef up Wi-Fi at stadiums. They made, you know, the, the video boards you see show fantasy stats now and, and highlights. And they, they really kind of beefed all that up a few years ago. So uh, that, that's certainly something I think they would be aware of. Um, and, and I think that's a good point. Um, Dan and Mary Kay, oh, sorry, Dan. Can I, I just want to ask you guys something. This You guys would know this much more than I um, with how long you've been in Cleveland. Um, how much do you think tailgating is tied and tethered to the football going experience? And the reason I'm bringing it up is because let's say Florida, for example, you know, we already see, you know, the beach is opening back up and whatnot. You know, if the NFL says, all right, no fans at stadiums, what would they do about tailgating? And in that form, does that change potentially where the NFL may land? Like, if you're not at the game, are there no tailgates? Or, or just how are they going to police that? Or is it is one – can you do one without the other? Well, as we have come to find out, uh, state health directors can sort of mandate whatever they want to happen. So if we got to August and September and, the, and, and football is happening, uh, they can basically still say – there can't be any gatherings of more than a certain amount of people. And so therefore, you know, the Muni lot can't be happening because if we're not allowed to have more than whatever, 50 people, hundred people in a, in a gathering spot, then, you know, it can be controlled that way. And I do envision uh, the way things have been going, uh, some kind of controls like that, at least in the early going. Yeah, and I, I just wonder. Sorry, Dad. I just wonder if fans in Florida can tailgate and the ones in Cleveland can't. What What is that going to do to the NFL fans? It just that it, it's it's fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if there would still be some attempts to tailgate if fans right. couldn't then walk over to the stadium um, or couldn't even walk to a bar to watch the game. I, I'm assuming by then we'll have restaurants open to some degree. Um, but I, you know, all of this is stuff they have to consider. You know, I mean, even. You know, around my house, I if if I go to run, I, I don't really go to the trails anymore because they're packed. If it's if it's really nice out, like you're zigging and zagging all over the place. So um, it, some of the it's it's tough to kind of keep the crowds down in public places like that. Um, the one other thing I want to touch on, and this is really a topic of conversation with the NBA, of course, and you know, baseball has thrown this out there, is the bubble idea which is a lot more complicated in the NFL because I just think you need more, you need more at an NFL game, uh, just more infrastructure. Medical staffs have to be bigger. Uh, you know, I think the NBA would want to limit some of their medical personnel, but in the NFL, I really can't do that. The infrastructure is so much bigger, but do either of you think there's, there's some bubble idea if, if we get that far where maybe they did pods of eight teams or, pods of four teams or you know they put the AFC in a bubble somewhere in the NFC however they did it do either of you think that's a realistic option if it comes to that you know I really don't think it's a realistic option I really can't see the NFL doing that like you said Dan because of the logistics because of the size of teams the size of staffs and all of that sort of thing um, and it's just so hard for me to fathom that with the amount of players on one football team that you're not going to have one positive test <laughs> in any given week. You know what I mean? Like if everybody's out and about and everybody, you know, everybody's with their families and, and doing 
uh, all kinds of things and there isn't necessarily the social distancing anymore. It just seems to me that um, it's gonna be really tough to find a week where you can get two football teams together where they're not having to, to, to quarantine, to isolate, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, one person tests positive on a football team and then they can't play that weekend. There, there are so many unforeseen consequences for all of this that we, we just don't, we just don't have any idea. Well, that, that's the other part of the, the kind of bubble thing, Ellis, is, is you could maybe quarantine the teams and the players and hotels somewhere, but you'd have to have regular testing of, you know, 60 guys per team. And in football, more than any other sport, you'd have to be able to bring guys into that bubble more often because of injury, right? I mean, we'd see more and more, you, you know, we see it all the time. A guy gets hurt, you can't play the season. You've got to bring somebody in to replace him. Your practice squad is only so big. I, I think there would be a lot more complications if you tried to, the bubble approach in football. Yeah, these clubs work out players every Tuesday of the week. You know, when the facility's empty, they are they are bringing in talent. Um, maybe the, the younger rookies and stuff don't know that, but they're always looking to replace you. That's that's the name of the game in the NFL. A few things that make this just so fascinating, what you said, Mary Kay. Um, on, if we're talking science, I have no problem with the bubble idea. If they can figure out the money, of course, and if that's the way to keep the players the most safe, then go for it. Logistically, I'm not the guy for that. Someone who makes way more money than me could figure that out potentially. And what makes this even more complex is, you know, work life in general, it used to be, you know, get your work done. And then when you leave, I don't care what you're doing. It's your private life. Go do what you want to do. This has changed everything now because now these teams are going to need to know what their players are doing when they leave the building. And, you know, as long as they weren't getting into trouble, of course, but now, now it's like, who have you been around? Who you've been in contact with? I mean, this is going to be a real quarantine once these leagues start back up. And then just to piggyback off how Mary Kay started her point, uh, we got a PR release today about the 15 undrafted free agents the Browns officially signed today. Uh, these rosters are just colossal compared to the, the NBA. You know, we're talking 12 guys on an NBA roster. The NBA is talking about having 30 total, um, you know, priority personnel there when they start playing. So when a team signs 15, just one team signs 15 undrafted free agents, we're talking – you know, training camps, another thing maybe we can get into on another pod, but how these rosters eventually get cut down and then for the bubble concept to even work, there are just so many moving parts here. But I think like everyone, the science should should win out. And then once the states decide we can open these stadiums, maybe the bubble uh, won't even be necessary by then. But if it is, it's going to be a lot to figure out. And here's what we, here's what we should uh, talk about in another pod sometime. We'll, Dan, maybe uh, you'll like this topic. I like all, I like all podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Sports writing could forever change. I mean, I really fear that this could be, and I just hope that this doesn't happen, but I I fear that it's going to be hard to get those locker rooms open again. uh, Because I mean, as you guys know, I mean, after games, you know, you've got somebody sitting at the locker, you know, just, uh, you know, with their head down, you got somebody consoling somebody, you've got, uh, you know, you got, you got guys cheering and, you know, high-fiving and you guys, you know, you've got uh, the owner coming through and patting somebody on the back. You've got uh, so much emotion goes on uh, in that post-game locker room, especially. And, um, and I'm very, very concerned that it's going to be hard to get those locker rooms open again and that it's going to be hard to capture that emotion. And I hope that I hope that we can find a way 
uh, to make sure that we haven't seen the end of those days. Yeah, I, I think at some point I'd love to do like a bigger pod with all of all of our beat writers, just sort of how how that shapes your coverage. And it's different for every sport. You know, the NFL is actually the least open of all the leagues, um, but it, it's interesting. And, and I just think back to the Miles Garrett, Mason Rudolph thing. You, you know, you walk in that locker room, it was the biggest win the Browns have had in years. And it felt like the season was over. <laughs> like, those are things you can't pick up in no. an interview room or, a you know, or Demarius Randall sitting at his locker. We've talked about him, how great he was. Sometimes you just walk up to him and get a great quote. Or, or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, hey, losing that would, would lose a lot, at least for us, uh, really as far would. as covering the football team goes. Yeah. It um, makes a huge difference. Okay, go ahead. Oh. Yeah, Dan, I just want to say this real quickly. Um, you know, obviously my locker room experience is much thinner than you or Mary Kay's, but I'll never forget you bring up the Mason Rudolph moment, that elevator ride down after it all everything happened, and just, you know, you and Doug and me trying to figure out where we we're all going to run to um, and I end up going to the other locker room, the Pittsburgh locker room. But if that had happened and then we have no locker rooms to go to, as you alluded to, it, it changes everything. It changes everything we write, everything we're able to consume. Um, I, I, I can't imagine how we would have approached that situation without access to the locker room. So it's something to unpack for another pod. And uh, mm -hmm. Mary Kay, I couldn't agree more. I'm worried. All right, we're going to take a quick break. I'll tell you about Football Insider. And then we're going to talk a little football, actually. We're going to talk about Odell Beckham Jr right on the other side here. Let me tell you about Football Insider. What is Football Insider? Well, throughout the day, if you sign up, you get texts from Mary Kay, from me, from Scott, from Ellis. We text you about news, uh, analysis, our opinions on things. Throughout the day, it's texts directly to your phone. You get to interact directly with us. So when you respond, we see it and we respond directly to you. This isn't like on Twitter or any place else. It comes directly to you and only you. It's a level of access to us that you just can't get in any other way. You also get a daily newsletter with something that we write that doesn't go on cleveland.com. It only goes to our Football Insider subscribers. It could be analysis. It could be uh, kind of a fun look back at drafts. I graded the last, I think, three Browns drafts for a newsletter recently. Uh, fun things like that that you can't get anyplace else on cleveland.com. So there's a 14-day free trial, and after that, it's $3.99 a month. Uh, you can cancel with one text, but I don't think you're going to want to. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of people really enjoying this as it has grown. Like I said, 14 cents a day, $3.99 a month. It's worth it. Cleveland.com slash Browns. Click on the box on the right side of the page to get more info. Or if you want to sign up, 216-208-3965. Again, to start there, 14-day free trial, 216 208 3965. Now back to the show. And back on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast, Dan Lobby with Mary Kay Cabot and Ellis Williams. And Mary Kay, yesterday we get a video from Odell Beckham Jr., kind of an update on his rehab. Uh, tell us what we need to know. Well, first of all, he looks great. I mean, my goodness. I mean, he really looks like he has recovered uh, from that core muscle surgery. He went into detail a little bit about uh, how he tore a little piece of his ab in training camp, and that led to the hernia. And just one thing led to another uh, to the point where he had to have his surgery on January 21st. So what he told us yesterday, he did uh, an update on his YouTube channel and basically said that uh, the rehab is going really, really well. He feels that he's going to be bigger, faster, stronger. He says, this is my time. And he basically predicted a kind of a career season for himself. And I think that is 
tremendous news for Browns fans. He seems upbeat. He seems into it. He seems excited. And of course, this comes on the heels of everyone speculating all offseason that, you know, that he was going to be traded or wanted to be traded. So I thought it was great news for Browns fans. Uh, Ellis, I, we've heard Odell Beckham say over and over 2020 is going to be his year. So what does it look like? What, what does Odell Beckham's year look like in 2020 if we're going to look back and say, yeah, that, that was Odell's year? Dan, that's a great question and one I'm really struggling with for a few reasons. Um, first, I'll just say this. I, it's hard not to believe in Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, the physical tools are all there. And, you know, from the one-handed catch that sent him on to superstardom, uh, to even the 89-yard score versus the Jets last year, he has those moments. Um, you know, as a college football receiver myself, uh, I just have a, a mass appreciation for how he plays the position, the things he does that really have nothing to do with his athletic skill set, his gift, his God-given ability, just the way he goes about his craft in that way. Uh, he's completely changed how people practice catching the football, quite frankly. Um, but I say all that to then say this. I floated this out. Uh, sometime around the combine, I think. I'm starting to worry that there's an Odell Beckham Jr. and Kyrie Irving comp here, just in the fact that they're both extremely talented. You can't take their eyes off them. But did they potentially peak, not because of their physical limitations, but more because of injuries habilitating them? when they were much younger, younger than we anticipated. So, you know, you think most peaks are between, uh, you know, you're at your apex between 26 to 29, somewhere around there. Um, but once you start getting nicked up, as Mary Kay said, and as Odell alluded to in the video, you overcompensate, one leads to another, small injury here, small surgery here, all of a sudden you're just banged up your whole career and you never reach that height again. I really hope I'm wrong. Kyrie's the same way. I love watching that man score. The way he moves the basketball, it's incredible. But it keeps seeming like the same thing for him. I'll wrap up with this. Kevin Stefanski edition, I've said it on this podcast before, I think Odell Beckham Jr. can be the biggest beneficiary of it. Stefan Diggs was second or third in the league last year in deep target percentage. And you saw what the haul the Vikings got from, for him to, from Buffalo. He's respected as one of the best in the game. Odell can have a great bounce back year with Stefanski now and at full health. There are just a lot of things we need to keep an eye on. So Mary Cam, looking at it right now, um, his best just raw numbers season would have been in 2015 when he had yeah. nine, 96 catches for 1,450 yards. Uh, but you could also make the case 2014 might have actually been his best season. He averaged 108.8 yards per game in his rookie year, uh, but he only played in 12 games, so his raw numbers weren't quite as good in, as in 2015. And then 2016, you've got another, you know, 1,367 yards, 10 touchdowns. You're looking at 35 touchdowns in those first three years, and then we've seen a drop-off in those numbers. Can he get back to those types of seasons that he had those first three years of his career? Yeah, if, he's, if he stays healthy, I think that he can. But Ellis brings up a great point. When you have an injury, and we know exactly where Odell believes this all started, right in Cleveland in the preseason uh, when he got hit, what he believes is illegally, by Brianne Body Calhoun. That started a downward spiral. He shortly thereafter snapped the ankle, and then he has had a series of injuries uh, just, you know, secondary residual in injuries after that, including this whole, whole 
core muscle thing that, that he has going on now. Uh, hopefully for him, the, you know, he had one of the best surgeons in the country when it comes to core muscle injuries, probably the preeminent one. So hopefully for him, this really took care of it. He looks amazing. And it looks like he, like he said, he got everything aligned. Alignment is the big key word for the bronze this year. <laughs> Even Odell's body is going to be aligned. Uh, so, you know, he feels like he got, you know, his shoulders are, you know, working in the right place. I mean, everything is just kind of um, where it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to be. And he's doing a lot of core work, a lot. You can see him doing that on the videos. And I think uh, that is his main focus. So if he stays healthy and if Baker Mayfield excels in this offense the way that we expect him to, I would anticipate that you would see Odell climb back up those charts and be right up again in, in the top five in receptions, receiving yards, and maybe touchdowns as well. So uh, it, it just all depends on him staying healthy and Baker Mayfield rebounding from his bad year. Yeah, I mean, with, with guys like Odell, it's always, you know, rule them out at your own risk. It, obviously, they can't control what happens sometimes to their bodies, and, and sometimes your body just betrays you. But if a guy like that with that sort of talent is healthy, and as you mentioned it, there were flashes last year, right? We got that long touchdown against the Jets. I'm even thinking back to the Cincinnati game. You know, when he, when he got over 1,000 yards, he was playing sick. Uh, again, in that locker room after the game, you, you know, you could tell the, the guy was not 100%. And, and he also made this spectacular catch for a touchdown. Just one of those moments where you're like, whoa, okay, yeah, I, I remembered this guy. Um, you, you just never rule that type of talent out, especially because he's not old. You know, this guy's still really young. Uh, like I said, he was a rookie in 2014. Uh, you, you just never know if that guy's healthy and his quarterback is playing well, and this offense fits him. You just never know that alignment, if all of that aligns for him and his body's aligned, you just never rule that out. You know what was so weird last year, and I know we're kind of running out of time here, but um, what was so weird last year is that, that Baker just did not really ever seem to have a great feel for Odell or vice versa. Um, and now this offseason, of course, they're not able to work out together very much. But I think the offense itself next year should lend itself to Baker looking to Odell on, on different shorter routes and things like that. And also, of course, going deep. But uh, I just think that the, the scheme itself will be more conducive to those guys uh, developing the, the chemistry that they need to have. But Baker just didn't look to Odell that much last year. And that's got to change. And when, and when he did, Alice, they were just a little off. Right. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you did a post on this at one point last year. They were just a little bit off. And, and even, you know, again, just another example that sticks in my mind. There was a play against Baltimore where they're backed up. They run this play action. Odell beats his man down the sideline. And Baker just overthrows him a little bit. And it would have been a 90-plus yard touchdown with, with a better throw and, and better timing. And they just never got that down. Yeah, that was the story of those two last year. And then you, I can think of the Arizona game, the, the interception that he threw to Patrick Peterson, you know, just, a, just a, a, a bad ball at the end of the day. So a lot of this, much like the, the 2020 season, is going to come down to how Baker Mayfield plays. But as we talked about earlier, Browns fans can have a, have a lesser worry about that because the difference between what Freddie Kitchens was doing and Kevin Stefanski is going to do in its most simple form. We could have a whole podcast eventually probably about what the differences will end up being. But in this most simple form is 
Stefanski's going to let the game come to Baker Mayfield, where Freddie Kitchens was this, you know, let's run three, four deep right away. You know, we'll do play action on first down, but then we're going to run you all deep. And he wanted Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham Jr. to do the heavy lifting. And now we've seen as Stefanski and Andrew Berry have built this team, they're going to let the offensive line and the running game and these tight ends do the heavy lifting. And then Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham Jr. can come in and clean up the scraps, which will be beneficial and, and plentiful if you just look at the Vikings last year with Stephon Diggs and Kirk Cousins. So he's going to let the game come to him, and that's going to take care of Odell Beckham Jr. itself, assuming everyone stays healthy, of course. And one of the interesting things to watch as we go forward is the fact that, again, this is a very precision timing offense. I think I even asked Alex Van Pelt, can you freelance? Odell Beckham Jr. will run around until he gets open and hope that Baker throws him the football. That's not how it's going to work in, in this scheme. And so he's going to have to work within the framework and the structure of the scheme in order for him to have the type of production he wants to have. Okay. Well, that will do it for our Wednesday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Make sure you are subscribed because as you know, by now we're doing these every weekday. So make sure you're subscribed and getting these right in your feed. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe, rate, review, all that stuff. Sign up for Football Insider too. I told you earlier about that. Make sure you go to cleveland.com slash Browns and check out that box on the right side of the page. It'll give you all the info you need to get that 14-day free trial. So for Mary Kay and Ellis, I'm Dan. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>